Hi everyone, from Impact Alpha Media, this is Returns on Investment, a show about the impact investing marketplace. Live on tape from New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the financial technology company LiquidNet. Joining me in my office is Imogen Rose-Smith, a senior writer with Institutional Investor Magazine. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And by the magic of podcast technology, joining us from California is David Bank, who is editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hey, you guys. On today's show, we're going to talk about the impact of housing. As the old saying goes, there's no place like home. What's the role for impact investing in the U.S. housing market? David, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, banks retrenched from the housing market. Into this void stepped alternative investment firms like private equity firms and hedge funds. How has this played out? Well, it's interesting. You know, I think I don't know it's widely known, but these private equity companies um, have become some of the largest landlords in the country. So uh, companies like Blackstone bought up lots of homes out of foreclosure from the banks and have been uh, renting them out in many cases to, to, you know, a lot of single family homes, also obviously apartment buildings, and also then, you know, flipping them. There's multiple flavors of private equity. There's folks who are holding them and waiting for the housing markets to rebound and then selling them. There's folks who are milking them for, for current rental income, sometimes letting maintenance degrade. And, you know, what we're now seeing is sort of, you know, a second or maybe it's a third or fourth wave of effects out of this. Um, Foreclosure rates for some of these private equity firms are uh, much higher than average eviction rates. And so it really is is now time to take a look at what kinds of private equity um, is coming into the housing market and what kinds of impact that's having on on uh, on renters and and homeowners. I mean, what's striking to me is you know, obviously, the end investors in the majority of these private equity firms are institutional investors, and it's a lot of public pension money. You know, the Blackstones of this world, the Carlisles of this world, public pensions are who they go to to raise their money. So a lot of the people that you're seeing protesting these firms both the banks as being sort of the lenders and the foreclosures, foreclosures, and now private equity firms for being landlords, it's a lot of organized labor, you know, for, for good reasons, because they see these organizations coming in, you know, they don't have the same responsibilities to the community that, you know, the, the previous owners might have had. You, you, you're going from individuals owning homes to these large anonymous private equity firms, and people are up in arms but the same people a lot of the times who are protesting are the teachers are the union workers whose defined benefit pension assets are investing in these funds so there's there's this really interesting disconnect in terms of how we think about housing and and how we as institutions and organizations and systems choose to respond to that and i think the other reason though that people are so upset is that the same organizations that profited from the subprime crisis appear to be the people that are now coming in and profiting on the other side. And meanwhile, the people who get stuck are the people who lost all their money investing in mortgages that they couldn't afford, got evicted from their houses, and now ended up in these rental properties. And I mean, you know, there was some really, there was a really great series that Bloomberg did on exactly what the private equity and hedge fund managing firms do, hedge fund managing firms, hedge fund managers do when they take over these housings. 
In, in, in fairness, I think, you know, we should point out that in some cases uh, it was considered a positive development that these private equity investors were were coming in. They were getting houses out of foreclosure. In some cases, they were fixing them up. They were making rental housing available um, in, in sometimes in neighborhoods where there hadn't been any rental housing because it had all been um, single family ownership. Um, so at least at the outset, there was some high hopes that the infusion of capital was a good thing for the housing market. Now, I think as... as, and there's, as, nothing, think as, as, as there's nothing inherently wrong with private equity, right? There's not necessarily anything inherently wrong with renting versus owning, right? And I think that's a really interesting conversation and question to have. I think the the issue is sort of when you just allow sort of private fund managers who have no sort of vested interest in the community to sort of run rampant, what are the implications of that, right? That there's no follow through, there's no thought about the broader effect that you're having. But Imogen, are those fund managers that are running these housing firms, are they uh, following the laws? Are they following yeah, the no, regulations? Yeah, no, they are following the rules, how, laws, and, and, however. And, and, so, and so they are, they are serving a need in the marketplace and they are uh, generating a financial return for their investors and earning a fee for yeah. themselves. But What's for example, the what they might do, and this happened in Ohio when Magnetar went in and bought up a bunch of houses, they might seek to get the laws changed. So they might, for example, seek to lower taxes for home ownership. So they are paying less in taxes, which is in the best interest of their investors. However, it sucks for the town where they do that because that means they've got to lay off teachers. And by the way, it's the same teachers who are in the defined benefit pension plans that are then investing in all of these fund managers. So they are following the laws and they are following their what how they interpret their fiduciary duty, but they're not necessarily thinking about what it means to be the country's largest land landlord. It's a sort of classic impact investing challenge because on the one hand, as you say, the, the private equity uh, funds and, and, and new landlords are not bound by the same kind of public uh, responsibility mandates that the banks under the Community Reinvestment Act and other things have have had. On the other hand, there's uh, at least the beginnings of an argument that, quote, doing the right thing might actually be better economics. So Morgan Stanley, for example, has made the case that bringing health care services into rental housing communities helps keep their... Um, uh, rental rates up and payment rates up because you've you've taken care of you know some of the basic um, needs of, of the tenants. There's 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 funds that are now developing that are trying to stabilize housing prices so that the housing remains affordable so that people aren't spending half their income on on housing because that also you know prevents them from falling behind on their rent. So there's ways in which if you can get the balance right that, uh, you know, affordable housing can become a better investment than just, you know, sucking as much as you as you can out of the tenants. And that, that that's my point. And that's where I think there's a huge opportunity for impact investing, because you can do this in a way that you're doing it right. And you can produce above market returns and have a community and a civic responsibility that in the long term results in a better investment because you're not sort of sucking all the capital out of the community. And so you are starting to see funds emerge that do that and again sort of target and your traditional institutional investor audience. You know, I I could make the case and Deborah Schwartz would argue strongly against this. Deborah Schwartz is she is the 
head of impact, I believe, at the MacArthur Foundation. Um, and she is sort of well known as being sort of one of the impact real estate investing experts out there. I mean, she's been doing this for a very long time and you know has a very good reputation. But you know, the majority of, of the MacArthur's impact efforts were done using either endowment money, or using, using endowment money either in the form of loans or in the form of program-related investing. It's, it's only relatively recently that they've looked into actually doing for-profit investing. You can make the case that by having, being largely focused on, you know, either grant giving or PRI investing, that the and PRIs impact. are program-related investments which are below market yeah. by, by their very definition, by the very uh, legal statute, they yeah. have to be below market. So you can make the case that by focusing on that, the impact investing community has missed the larger trick of stepping into this void. They, in fact, I mean, they, they were, this is something that the foundations are great at. They're really, really knowledgeable about communities. They could have had the expertise to really come in and structure for-profit investments in some ways better than and been better at it than Blackstone who didn't spend any time in these communities until they, it became an investment opportunity for them and so by not thinking about it so consciously as a for-profit opportunity arguably impact was behind the curve, curve. and they are, I mean they are starting to do innovative and interesting things now but do they have the the skill sets uh, and and quite frankly the the, the capital necessary to make that's, an effective play. But that's yes. my point. Like, why are you fishing in the impact capital pond? Why are you fishing in the PRI pond or the grant pond instead of going fishing in the for-profit fund where there's a huge amount of money that would, that would do this? And you could have a much bigger impact. So you're making the, the case that if a foundation cared about affordable housing and housing policies, that they should put... Uh, enormous amount of capital and human resources and talent to get into the housing game in a big way and then attract additional be, be the ones that the, the, the ones that structure these investments structure these affordable housing plays whether they are uh, mortgage origination or whether they're uh, buying and owning homes and renting them out and getting rental income um, and that so a foundation or some other impact investor with enormous uh, access to capital should st set this up structure in a smart effective way that thinks of the entire community that that preserves the integrity of a community that that preserves the uh, the, the dignity of the individuals who are affected um, and not just looking at it a money-making opportunity but th th and then so the foundation or another impact investor should be the lead in that and then that if they did that and structured it in a way they could do it that could could reach financial returns that would actually attract outside uh, investment capital from pension funds and others yeah I mean I would argue that they would have been better off spending their time seeding businesses that did that and going to get for-profit capital from the institutional investor community. And you are saying, I mean, again, Deborah Schwartz would argue that you can, st you can stack the capital, right? That there are different capital needs and you, you have to recognize that and adapt accordingly. One of the distinctions to make is that most of the foundation work on this had been around low-income housing, which is obviously a, a, you know, an urgent problem, but the housing crisis now um, is you know, a solidly middle-class crisis as well as, as prices have gone up in most of the metro areas. And it's, you know, it's very hard to, to buy, obviously, but also rental prices have gone even higher in some cases. And so what you need is, you know, foundation money, is, as big as it is, is a drop in the bucket, as you say, 
Imogen. What we really need is a, is a way in which, you know, affordable housing for the middle class becomes, you know, a viable economic proposition separate from, you know, sort of small foundation projects. David, that reminds me of a meme I just saw, uh, and I know that we're all uh, big fans of talking about millennials on this podcast, uh, but the meme I saw, I'm just quoting it here, is that there should be a millennial edition of Monopoly, where you just walk around the board paying rent, never able to buy anything. Well, that, and that does, I mean, that, you know, that's also the student debt question, right? And, and how incomes are not going up. And what does it mean if we shift to an economy where everyone can't afford to buy a house? You know, we, we, you know, but in my office, we talk a lot about the retirement crisis and the implications of that. You know, there's, there's also a home ownership problem and a debt crisis. And that, that those structural changes have economic implications. And that's why you're seeing like the Fed and other people start to get concerned about this because it has massive economic implications for what happens down the road. Well, it has a massive implications for employment. I mean, you know, companies out here in California can't recruit because nobody can afford to live here. Facebook just uh, invested in a housing fund to try to get some affordable housing because they needed to be able to hire some people and, and those people need to live somewhere. And so, um, you know, it's way out of whack for, for the companies that need talent. And, and the teachers that teach those the, the, the children of Facebook employees uh, need places to live, and the firefighters that protect the houses yeah. of those Facebook employees need places to live. And they're and they're living they're living two and three hours away, and 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 that that clogs up the, the freeways and creates all kinds of environmental issues as well. So it's a cascading effect from just from the housing crisis. Yeah, and that and that goes back to sort of like basic questions of community development. Like, what do you want your community to look like? What what do you what makes you know for for happy communities? What elements do they have to have? And yeah, you know, the 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 point is that like the blackstones of this world historically have not had to think about that. And and so they've actually sort of found themselves in this situation where the, these issues are really really important. And it's not necessarily that by the way that they would be opposed to thinking about these things. It's that, you know, the kid with the spreadsheet being like, "Hey, you know what? Let's go and buy this big block of condos in Florida." isn't thinking about the realities of life on the ground in Florida. So in a sense, this has crept up on people and it's, it, it's rising to a level of urgency now, in part because, you know, of who we have coming into the presidency and the sort of uprising of the middle class and this recognition that the economy is not working for everyone. And so Imogen, if, if this is impact investing, one of the keys of impact investing is to, to measure the, the non-financial impact of your investments. Uh, what are the, the metrics here around housing? How do you measure whether or not uh, you know, a, a firm that's, that's engaged in the housing business is having a positive externality or a negative externality? So, I mean, like all of the, I mean, this is one of the huge challenges that impact obviously has, right, is, is that when it, it's easy to measure dollar and cents, it's much harder to measure other impacts, right? So on the very simple side, you say you look at rents, right? Well, you look at rents, you know, how much are you charging rents? What does that mean relative to the incomes? And you look who's look at who's in your houses, right? Are you in fact having, are you building the communities that you want to build? So if you say, if you're saying, you know, if you're Bobby Turner and the point of your fund is, hey, you know, we're going to have teachers and firefighters living in these houses and having a, a rent that, that is equal, that is a fair 
distribution of their income, fair portion of their income, are you actually achieving them? That's pretty easy to work out the metrics of that. Then you have, you know, the more challenging questions of, you know, do you, you know, schools, are you putting schools into your community? Like how successful are those schools? What are the graduation rates in the schools? If you're, if you're including, let's say, healthcare facilities in your communities, what are the impacts of that? There is a lot of data around like prisons, right? How many people in a community end up in prison? How many, like those kinds of questions. Like, you know, there are funds out there that say, okay, we, if, 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 you, if you're a felon, it's very difficult to get rental property. So the result of that is recidivism, right? So if you can cut down on recidivism by actually integrating people into back into communities, that is a positive impact. So there's a bunch of this stuff that, it's another reason that people like this space because it does have a lot of metrics. But it depends on what you try to achieve. Imogen, you, you skirted close to the, the topic that we, we vowed we weren't going to talk about today, which is the new, the new administration. But I think it does bear mentioning in this housing conversation that the new Treasury Secretary nominee um, is likely to get questioned on, on his own role in the foreclosure and eviction crisis because uh, a, a bank that he ended up owning uh, uh, played a major role. Isn't that right? Yeah, no, he he is. He, so he and a group of investors went into IndyMac, bought it out, created a new bank that was involved in a lot, was, had a reputation for being very aggressive in terms of how it foreclosed on people's houses and you know, made a lot of money. So, so that, that is, there, there are some other issues um, that will come up during Steve Mnuchin's hearing, but that is certainly one of them. And you're going to see a lot of outrage around it. And again, Donald Trump has a reputation for not being a, fa- a fan of um, affordable housing. So that is something that actually has people in this space very, very concerned, because what does it mean for how they can develop their plans going forward? All right, I think we're going to leave it there. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment, ROI. Thank you, Imogen. Thank you. And thank you, David. Thank you, Brian. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us a rating and leave a comment. It helps other people discover us. For more on the Impact Investing Marketplace, follow us on Twitter at Impact Alpha. And check out our website, impactalpha.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter to keep in touch. We welcome your feedback as well. Send us an email, info at impactalpha.com. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. In New York, I'm Brian Walsh. On behalf of David Bank and Imogen Rose-Smith, thanks for listening to Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking again soon.